All right, let's, uh, let's look together at Proverbs chapter 7 today. I'm going to talk about uh, protecting your marriage, essential resolutions and ingredients. We talked about security coming from unrivaled relationship. And uh, I want to take some time to unpack a section of Scripture. And before I do that, and while you're turning, let me just give you a, uh, a, a passage of Scripture that um, means a lot to me uh, as it relates to this subject of loving. Um, the essential ingredient in marriage, if it's not commitment, it's love. Or if it's love, it includes commitment. Um, loving is the essence of marriage. Um, everything I just talked about today should challenge you, but it's also recognized that you're going to have to manifest love toward one another because in your humanity, your depravity, the activity of the enemy, people in close proximity often fumble in terms of the commitments that we just talked about, the promises that we make. And the essential ingredient foundational to dealing with failure in marriage is love in marriage. I like to say that not only is it not just finding the right person, it's being the right person. Another way I like to say it is the key is not so much finding true love, but expressing true love. Everybody wants to find their true love, and certainly that's a cultural priority, and Christmas happens at my house, and the Hallmark Channel's on more than it's not, and uh, you know those storylines are all the same. He finds her, and she finds him, and they're not looking, or they are looking, but you know that whole finding true love theme that happens in our culture is a reflection of the appetite of our heart to experience that. But the key to experiencing true love is to express it. We get as a consequence of what we give. And a counselor that I uh, had heard speak said, you know, most marriages are like two ticks without a dog. Let that sit on you just a little bit. Okay? <laughs> Two takers, no giver. And marriage is about giving because marriage is about loving. So it's not just finding the right person. It's being the right person. And being the right person is I'm going to express true love. Let me give you a verse to think about. And this is King James. Okay, So I use the New American Standard. I like it very much. I think it accurately reflects more than not when I translate it out of the original language that it looks a lot like what I've re read. And I like that. It's more literal. It's more careful. It's precise. But I'm going to give you the King James version of this verse because this is one of the places where I don't think my translation did the best job. But the King James did a great job, and it's beautifully written. It's true love expressed in one verse. Now you could go to 1 John 3.16 and that is we know love by this that he himself laid down his life for us therefore we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That is true love as manifest in Christ. That's a great verse. But here's another verse you may not know. 
You ought to know. You ought to memorize it. But memorize it in the King James. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. Here's true love. This is Paul to the people at Corinth, really validating why they should trust him. And this is what he said. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. That's true love. That's the basis of trust. That's what he was appealing to the Corinthians to trust him because he had expressed that kind of love to them. The New American Standard says, if I love you like that, should you love me less? Which sounds like if I give, you should give back. That may be true, but that's not the force of the context. The context is I loved you in such a way that it ought to birth trust. I want you to think about true love in the context of what Paul said. And if there's any verse you want to put in your home to remind you of what love is, that's certainly one of them. I will. True love is I will love. True love is not convenient love. True love is committed love. True love requires a willful determination, a from-your-heart resolution. The two most important words in real love is I will. It's what marriage is about. It's a commitment that says I will. It's a determination by your words to express a love that is no matter what love. I've determined I'm going to love you. Number two, true love requires an other-centered passion. Really, it's an unnatural other-centered passion. And I say unnatural because it's for you and not for me. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. What's natural is you spend for me and be spent for me. It is other-centered. Now listen, every husband will understand I, I will very gladly spend. Okay, Every husband understands the word spend. Because when you love, there's an expense associated with it. True love involves cost. True love is expensive. And it is including, if you're loving, the cost of external material things. Stuff, money, stuff you earn, stuff you invest. Paul's saying that love includes expressing that love at cost for things that are needed and enjoyed by someone else. Paul said, I will, that's a commitment, a willful determination, and another centered passion, I will spend. But here's what many husbands and many lovers don't understand, some do, and that's the words, and be spent. I will very gladly spend and be spent. Be spent means the cost of internal things. The priceless internal stuff, the cost of myself, the giving of your heart, your strength, your energy, your soul. Assets internal, assets emotional, and assets clearly personal. 
I was with a couple yesterday coaching them, and I do monthly. His biggest longings was she would give him more than superficial, more than just the shallow kind of surface level stuff of life, but her soul to share who she is and what she thinks. True love includes internal the giving of internal things. That's what it means to be spent. You're expending valuable things internally. It's for you. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. True love is for someone else. It's an other-centered passion. It's for you at my expense. True love is unnatural. True love is other-centered because true love is about someone else, not yourself. It's costly. If it's love, it costs. That's why the 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he, gave his, he laid down his life for us. That is the ultimate cost. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. There's an expense to loving. There's a sacrifice to loving. There's a no boundaries investment to loving. If this costs me my life, loving is the centerpiece to marriage. But there's something in this verse, the King James version of it, that I think is really, really powerful. It is not just an other-centered passion. It is a Christ-like reflection. I will That's a determination. Very gladly spend and be spent for you. That's an other-centered passion. Though, the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Which is to say, and this is countercultural, it is to say that I will even if you don't. I will love you even if you don't. That's my conviction. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Even if you don't love me reciprocally, because biblical love, true love, is not reciprocal love. Reciprocal love is I give to get. Biblical love is Christ-like love, which says I'm loving, even if you don't. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's biblical love. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Do you know what the for us was? We were his enemies. We were not deserving of that love. We were alienated and enemies of God, undeserving of that love. True love is other-centered love at cost It's very personal. He himself laid down his life for us. It's not something he paid a surrogate to do. He didn't buy us out of that privilege as if he paid someone else. He paid the price. He was the cost. He did it unconditionally. He did it functionally for our benefit. That's how we're to love. So when your spouse isn't leaving and cleaving, that's where all of this is going. The biblical remedy for that is loving.
God loved us first, right? We know love. We experience love. He loved us. We love, it's not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave himself for us. That's, that's true love. Other-centered love. I will even if you don't love. If that makes sense, would you say amen? Okay. That's convicting, isn't it? It is to me. What comes natural is you love me, I'll love you back. You meet my needs, I'll meet your needs. You leave and cleave and you establish the confidence in me that we have an unrivaled relationship. I'm first. Yeah, I'll respond to that. This is about loving when that's not present. All right, Proverbs chapter 7, which is where I invited you. That's just an installment. Let me tell you why we're here. Because the vast majority are going to fumble the ball in this particular category of moral integrity, fidelity. I said it, 57% of our men in our culture, 54% of women, 41% husband and wife in the same home will fail in honoring the cleave commitment. No rivals. There will be a rival. Somebody will show up and they'll become a substitute. There will be a promise violated. Some of you may have experienced that. Some of you may have witnessed that. This is about that. I want to talk about why good people do bad things morally. And I have a conviction and I want to share it right out of the gate because I've been a pastor for over 35 years now. I've coached lots of couples. I've married lots of couples. I've dealt with infidelity, betrayal, and failure, violation of cleaving at all kinds of levels. I've yet to meet the person who set out to betray their promise. I've yet to meet the person that says, I want to compromise my character. I've yet to meet the person that says, I want to destroy my world by being unfaithful to my covenant vows to my spouse. As a matter of fact, the number one thing I hear over and over again is, I never thought this could happen to me. That is the single biggest response in the throes of failure in this regard. Because nobody sets out to do that. Destroy their marriage, destroy their reputation, destroy their children. And it is destruction. I mean, the whole point, you see it in Proverbs, eight times in the Proverbs, it says, hey, warning, 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 destruction ahead, bridge out, catastrophic consequences. Proverbs 2, verse 18, for the person who engages in immorality goes to her house and sinks down to death. Her tracks lead to the dead. None who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. Proverbs 5, in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of Sheol. Proverbs 6.32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. 
Stolen water is sweet, Proverbs 9. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Proverbs 22, 14. The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. Proverbs 23, 27. A harlot is a deep pit, which means it's hard to get out. An adulterous woman is a narrow well. It's very hard to get out. Surely she lurks as a robber and she increases the faithless among men. She's a destroyer of integrity and faith. Proverbs chapter 7, the section we're going to read, reads this way, verse 26 at the end. For many are the victims she has cast down and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol descending to the chambers of death. Nobody sets out to do that, but that's reality. And the biggest comment that I hear is, I never thought this could happen to me, which leads to this conviction. Good people who do bad things morally rarely intend to. And without wisdom and intentionality, I will too. And so will you. The probability is higher than not that this cleaving reality essential to the promise you made will be violated. So the conclusion I draw is most people never see a moral compromise coming. Proverbs chapter 7 is designed to help us see the steps that lead to it because it's never just a point in time. It's a path. I'm reminded of, and nobody's immune, including the person speaking today. No one is immune. No one's untouchable. If it can happen to David, it can happen to Harry. If it can happen and you fill in the blank of all the names and all the persons to them, it can happen to you. Now, you're here at a marriage conference. Your goal, I believe, is to strengthen your marriage. Part of the way you strengthen it is resolutions that protect it. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. So, this morning, Proverbs chapter 7. Let me talk about what it is. It's a morality play. It's a father to a son. Ironically, it's Solomon talking to his son, challenging him to avoid immoral behavior, which ultimately Solomon engaged in. I take this to you at 700 wives, 300 concubines. Clearly, he's way off the path later in life. I presume this to be earlier in life. When he's filled with God's wisdom and functioning according to that wisdom. And he's giving by way of biblical inspired perspective help to his son because of the catastrophic consequences related to failing in this way. This is a morality play, an inspired paradigm. Okay? This is God's gift to us to help us see the graphic ways that immorality happens. How does that happen? How do good people do bad things if they don't want to? This is how. These are the principles involved and revealed in the process of a moral slide. This is the reasons good people do bad things. 
So I want to give you some things you need to understand by way of why people fail and then some resolutions to make to protect you from failure. The first five verses I'm going to call the prevention of moral compromise. And I'm going to argue why good people do bad things is because they don't essentially prevent it because they are, listen to this, weak in the word. They neglect the Bible. They neglect it because they fail to memorize it. They neglect it because they fail to prioritize it. They neglect it because they fail to rehearse it or review it. And they neglect it because they fail to develop an intimate relationship with it. Watch the words, Proverbs 7, 1 through 5. Solomon to his son before Solomon's failure. You're going to see the word keep here three times. It's used nuanced differently each time. My son, keep my words. The word keep means to store up, like in a vault or in a silo with grain. It's used of Joseph storing up grain in Egypt before the famine. My son, keep my words, and here you see the the parallel idea, and treasure my commandments within you. That's memorization. Put God's word, that's the commandments of the Father. He's rehearsing the words of Moses, the law of God gifted to God's people, and he's doing so in a way that allows that word to be retained. He wants the word to be memorized. Thy word, David said in Psalm 119, have I hid in my heart. That's memorization. I put it here like money in my wallet. I tell my son, always carry cash. You will never know when you need it. That's the word of God stored. It's cash. You don't ever know when you're going to need it, but when you need it, you need to have it. Keep God's word. That's what Solomon says. If you keep it, and treasure it within you, this, these words, my word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed according to God's word. Memorize it. Verse 1. Verse 2. Another use of the word keep. Keep my commandments and live. That's not memorize it. That's apply it. Keep my commandments and live. And my teaching, watch this, as the apple of your eye. You know what that means? That's the pupil of the eye, the most precious part of the eye, the priority part. Treat the Bible as if it's precious and priceless. If you've ever had an eye injury, I've had an eye injury. If you've ever had eye surgery due to an accident, my wife's a horse person. I'm not. I love my wife, so I am the ranch hand. Part of being the ranch hand is you fix fences and build stables and I am competent enough that I can do some of those things but what I wasn't smart enough to do initially was make sure that whenever I was doing anything with a tool I had safety glasses on. I was doing an 8 by 8 post for a stable. My circular saw didn't go through all the way so I took a claw hammer and another claw hammer and I used my claw hammer as a chisel. Do you know that most eye injuries happen when you hit a hammer against a hammer? Because the metal fragments and the penetrating piece of that hammer went into my right eye and I'm at the children or the uh, 
Eye Foundation Hospital in Birmingham having surgery, nearly lost this eye. Guess how many safety glasses I have at my house? <laughs> they are everywhere. I do buy them by the dozen. The reason is because this is really valuable to priority to me, and I will protect it. And what Solomon is saying is, you not only need to memorize the word of God, you need to prioritize it so you protect time with it, so you can apply it. Verse 3, bind them on your fingers, write them. That has to do with the commandments coming from the words of God. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. You see that in verse 21 of chapter 6. My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. What is that? That's post-it notes. That's just reminders. Why? Because we're prone to forget. So keep God's word in front of you as a constant reminder. Keep God's word in you so you have it when you need it. Treat it as a priority and practice it. Verse 4, say to wisdom, which comes from the words of God, you are my sister. Call understanding, which comes from the insight you get from the words of God, your intimate friend. That's relationship. I take that verse to mean that you, the, you take the Bible and you build a relationship with it. This Bible I've had since 1980. Bought it in center Manhattan, Times Square in 1980. It's been rebound once. I was telling John it's going to need another one. It's coming apart. This is a companion to me. I've written in it enough that it's my friend. It's not just a blank book. It's not just a pretty Bible. Matter of fact, it's not pretty, but it's priceless. Some of us are really good. My son-in-law is a computer guy. He can make his Apple Mac talk. He's mastered it. A lot of people master a lot of things. They invest a lot of time training and learning. This needs to be your companion and friend. You need to have a relationship with this. For many people, this is a foreign language. It needs to be a familiar friend. I have a relationship with this. Now, let me tell you why memorizing it prioritizing it, reminding yourself, rehearsing it, and developing a relationship with it is so important. Look at what verse 5 says. That they, these words that you've prioritized, memorized, rehearsed, and built a relationship with, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner. Now, foreigner doesn't, it, it means someone outside of the covenant people of God culturally on the outside of law-abiding moral citizens. So she's a foreigner because she has a different culture. She has a different mindset about morality. That they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner, the pagan, who flatters with her words. The prevention for moral compromise begins with the word of God sown into your life as a priority in your life. Why would that be? Turn over to Psalm 19. Because of what the word of God does. 
the word of God satisfies, the word of God warns. Psalm 19 is a psalm dedicated to the revelation of God, both naturally and supernaturally through the scriptures. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's just giving different titles to the Bible, different consequences, and different characteristics. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Look at verse 10. All of those titles and functions and adjectives are descriptive of the Bible, verse 10. And those are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So they are your best possession. They are your greatest pleasure. Look at verse 11. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The word of God satisfies and the word of God warns. When you know it, it protects you. Listen, if the bridge is out ahead and there's a warning sign saying, stop, bridge out, how much is that sign worth? If there's a terrorist attack about to happen in our community here in Hollister today, how much is an early warning worth of that? It's priceless. The Bible is an early warning system. That is meant to protect you from catastrophic failure. In the late 80s, there was an Avianca airline in Spain that went down, went into a mountain. Everybody died. Fully loaded jumbo jet. When they recovered the black box, which keeps information about what was going on in the plane before it went down, it also records the voice of the pilots as they deal with their emergency. Housed on that black box was the pilot in command saying to the computerized, synthesized voice of one of his instruments, which said, pull up, pull up, pull up. That's what the computerized voice said. What's housed on the black box recording is the pilot's response to that. Shut up, gringo, shut up. The black box recorded a warning that was ignored. The conscience is God's warning system to your life. An informed conscience by the word of God is a gift of God to protect you from things that will destroy you and what matters both to God and to you. A sensitized conscience is a critical tool and what informs your conscience is the word of God stored in your heart, rehearsed, prioritized, and closely connected with you. The word of God warns. Turn over to uh, Proverbs chapter 27. I want to show you one more thing about the word of God because I think that's the first step. If your soul is not 
satisfied, you will fail. That's my second thought. Why do good people do bad things? They do bad things because they're weak in the word, because the word of God not only warns, the word of God satisfies. I want to show you a proverb that I think is really helpful as it relates to immorality. Verse 7. A sated man loathes honey. Now the word sated means satiated, satisfied. You've just eaten a full meal. Couldn't eat another bite. You love Thanksgiving like I do? It's one of those moments. It's after the turkey, after the potatoes, after the pecan pie. I can tell it's about lunchtime. I want to describe it all. It's after all of that. The sated man is the full man. He loathes honey. Question, is honey not tasteful? Oh, sure it is. My favorite food group is Krispy Kremes. You, do you sell that up here? Is there anyone... When I retired from my ministry in Alabama in 2015, they threw a reception for me. I'd been there 27 years as their senior pastor, and they threw a reception. They ordered 40 dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. They had, it was in our fellowship hall, we had like a 10-foot ceiling. They had a pyramid of glazed donuts all the way to the ceiling. I'm talking that's a retirement reception right there. Krispy Kreme is my favorite food group. I love Krispy Kremes. And if you know them, you know you've got to eat six just to get kind of the sense that you've got something in you. Because they're just... Are you with me? What would it take for a Krispy Kreme to be loathsome? I'd have to be really, really full. The sated man is the satisfied man. And the satisfied man loathes honey, not because the honey isn't tasty. He's just full. Look at the next phrase. But to the hungry man, the famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Here's something I want you to hear me say. Hungry people eat. Even the rice cakes look good when you're hungry. Here's another verse. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Let no immoral person like Esau be named among you. Now listen, he's called immoral. Do you know what Esau did? Who sold his birthright for a single meal. If you go back to Genesis, you will find Esau saying this to Jacob. I'm going to die if I don't. Trade me your birthright, a lot of value, for a bowl of soup, less value. I'm so hungry, I'll trade a lot for a little. Because to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. Here's the secret source antidote for immorality. A satisfied soul. Because if you're not relationally connected to God's satisfaction, you're hungry. And hungry people eat. If you go to to Proverbs chapter 5, and I'll drive this home just a little bit further, this whole idea. Because 
Esau was hungry. The Bible calls him immoral. Because immorality is trading a lot for a little. But when you're hungry, you don't think right. You think you're going to die. You got to have what you don't have. Verse 15, Proverbs 5, same subject. This is father talking to the son. He's giving him the antidote to adultery. He's going to do it from a different source of satisfaction. Not the word of God, but the wife of the youth. Drink water, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Fresh water from your own well. It's a figure saying be satisfied from your own source, not somebody else's. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water on the streets? Verse 17, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. The word rejoice in the Hebrew language means to be utterly satisfying. To bath in liquid chocolate. It's that word. It's rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Be exhilarated, verse 19, always with her love. Let your satisfaction be in your spouse, in your marriage. Be filled up with that. Be satisfied with her. For why? Should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Why do that when you should be satisfied in your your home? If you're fulfilled at home in your marriage relationship, if your soul is satisfied, if you're satiated there, honey's repulsive. It's not like there aren't options in our culture. There are options in our culture. You're a click away from anything you want in this culture. But hungry people, or excuse me, satisfied people aren't looking. They're repulsed by that. They're satisfied this way, and they're satisfied in their home. A satisfied marriage and a satisfied vertical relationship through the word of God is the preventative to a hungry heart that will eat. Why do people do bad things? They're hungry because they are weak in the word. And the word of God, John 17, 17, thy word is truth, sanctify them in thy truth, thy word is truth. So the word of God sanctifies, satisfies, and warns. Here's my resolution. I want to encourage you to make treasure the truth. Treat it as precious. Feast on it. I desire your word more than my necessary food. That's what Job said. His honor came out of that reality. So why do good people do bad things? How do you protect your marriage? First of all, strengthen your marriage in the word of God and your time with God. Strengthen your marriage by a commitment to finding your joy and exhilaration in your marriage marriage. Let your satisfaction and exhilaration be there because hungry people eat. Number two, why do good people do bad things? Look at the next verse, Proverbs chapter seven, and let me give it to you. They fail to learn lessons from life. Verse six, watch what wisdom does. 
For at the window of my house, so this is the wise father, this is wisdom talking. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. I looked out through the window and the covering of the window, and I made a life observation. This is looking and learning. This is listening as you observe realities in life and extracting benefit from what others do that you see. This is learning lessons from somebody else. Not through your own school of hard knocks, but through somebody else's failures and challenges. This is a statement that says wisdom learns by looking through the lattice of life. I wrecked a car a month ago. How many of you know what an aerial atom is? Anybody? Like one, two. There's only 11 in the state of California. There's 10 now. Um, I totaled mine a month ago. Uh, it's a little car that's uh, got a lot of horsepower and a lightweight, 1,350 pounds. A Mazda Miata is 2,500 pounds, 2,450 Mazda Miata makes 155 horsepower, 0 to 60 in about 7 seconds. Ariel Adam is 1,350 pounds, 300 horsepower, supercharged. And it'll go to 0 to 60 in 2.8. You can go on YouTube and Google it, and you'll see guys making funny faces just because it's sheer thrill of it. I bought one on an auction site in Monterey, drove it down the PCH1. I've had it uh, since July. Uh, Cars are therapeutic for me. It's cheaper for me to buy a car and drive it than to pay somebody to talk to me. <laughs> My son is sick and he can drive, so it's therapy for him. And I say that sincerely because when he's driving, he's not feeling the pain that he feels. So we do that. We went out for a drive a month ago, September 26th. Um, we, had a, we, have a, we host a college Bible study in my home, and every other week is small groups, and my wife hosts a small group of girls, and uh, she threw Parker and I out of the house so the girls could meet, and uh, so we went for a drive, and my son got in my car, and I got in his car, the Ariel, and we went driving. And uh, we had a spirited drive. It was a great time. It was therapy at its best. Coming home, it was dark. The car doesn't have great headlights. It has great performance, but not great lights. So I'm not driving hard or fast. Curvy roads, Southern California, some of the best driving roads in America, truly. And uh, I was coming around a right-hand corner. It's a rear-engine car, very light, weight at the back. Tires have cooled off probably doing 50 miles an hour, making a right-hand turn. What I didn't know is in the corner, when it got tighter, I, I got off the throttle. I just eased off. I, it's tighter than I thought. I'll just ease off the throttle. Weight's back when the throttle's on. Weight goes forward when the throttle's off. Weight's at the back, comes forward, takes the weight off the traction tires at the rear, so my car goes from straight to sideways in an instant. Now, I'm not a race car driver, but I can drive. But there was nothing in the world I could do with that. It was instant off down a 100-foot ravine. Jesus took the wheel. Therefore, I'm here. <laughs> that was the only spot that I could have survived that. There were boulders and trees, and it really was 100 feet down. 
we have a rule when you get to this. And I, I obviously, you know, I have a sore wrist from just the trauma of the turning into the, the slide, um, the bouncy ride to the bottom, but basically uninjured. The injuries I had were climbing out of the ravine. It was just really hard to get out. And I knew my son, we have a rule. If you get to the stop sign and your partner doesn't show up, you go back. And he honored that rule. I had no cell service where I was, so I had to get to the road in order for him to find me because you would have never found me. So I got to the road. He came back, thankful to see his dad, sad to see his car down in the bottom. I left the lights on so we could find it. <laughs> Couldn't get it out, obviously. It's at night. So we drive home. Do you know what happened after we told his mother what happened to his father? We sat down in front of the TV and watched six videos on YouTube on what happens to the aerial atom when you get off the throttle in a corner. GoPro on the roll bar, shooting down at the driver's feet in a corner, lift the throttle, car immediately rotates and off the road. They spin out. He made me watch six of those. I said, Parker... This would have been really good to have seen before I drove <laughs> off the road. Because you should be able to learn things from somebody else so you don't have to do those things. Look at Proverbs chapter 24. And really, the force of my thought to you and why good people do bad things, there's a lot of people who have failed in this area that we should be able to learn from. You probably know people who have fumbled the ball, and they are more than likely willing to say, this is what happened to me. And you'll learn themes. One of the themes you will learn is, I never thought this could happen to me, so how did it happen to you? Proverbs 24, verse 30, here's wisdom talking. I pass by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of the man lacking sense, and behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and I received instruction. He's learning a lesson from somebody else's vineyard. And he draws a conclusion, a proverbial conclusion, a wisdom statement. Ah, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. I'm looking at this guy's life and the consequence of his choices, his behavior. I'm looking at the outcome of his behavior and I'm drawing a proverbial wisdom conclusion and going, ah, I've learned. And that learning will affect me and help me. Many of us know someone who's failed. My question is, do you learn from what happens to others? Good people do bad things, can see it and see it and see it, and they just don't learn from it. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 7. So here's the resolution I want to encourage you to make. Look, listen, and learn. If it could happen to them, it can happen to you. How it happened to them is how it will happen to you. Number three, why good people do bad things. Thirdly, they are not resolved. 
to be righteous. They haven't decided in advance what they will do and not do. Let me say it another way. They have not cultivated non-negotiable convictions. I find that in verse 7. I saw among the naive. Some of your Bibles say simple. In the Proverbs, that means not somebody who's stupid or not very smart. The word naive in the book of Proverbs is literally, the Hebrew word is open door. They have not made up their mind. They're morally immature because they haven't closed the door on certain moral options. I looked and I saw among the naive, the morally immature, somebody who hasn't closed the door, they're open-minded on things they should be closed-minded to, they, they don't have clear moral standards. He's not made up his mind, as it were, about the moral values he will live, live by. He'll behave according to the prevailing conditions. We could say this simple man, this naive man, is a situational ethicist. He'll make his decision based on the situation. He's not committed himself to evil. That's not who he is, like the wicked guy. He's just not committed to be righteous like the wise guy. He's morally immature. And here's another way to say it. He's seducible. He's seducible because he has, doesn't have non-negotiable convictions. You see that in the rest of the verse. He lacks sense. The word sense is heart. He lacks a moral compass. The Hebrew word for heart is the, the moral center. He doesn't have resolutions. He doesn't have non-negotiable convictions. Naive in Proverbs means morally immature. He has no clear moral standards to live by. He has not made up his mind. He, he morally goes with the flow. He's not committed to evil like a bad man, but he's not committed to righteousness like a mature man. He is an open door and he is gettable. He's seducible. In contrast, you have Daniel in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. He made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Made up his mind, not doing it. You have Job chapter 31. I've made a covenant with my eyes that I won't gaze on a virgin. In other words, I've made up my mind. I'm not doing it. Do you have non-negotiable convictions which are designed to protect you? Every man here ought to have rules predetermined. Open door means I haven't closed the door on certain options. You need to have rules. I tell all my seminary guys, you never take a woman home, not your wife, alone. Never. Ever. You don't do lunch with her privately, ever. You don't meet in an office without glass in your door. I'm in charge of residence life at Masters now. The deans are underneath of me. They wanted to move me into King Hall where student life happens. I said, I'll move in there, but you're going to put a glass in my door. I'm not going to meet in, I can't have every conversation open door. So put a glass in my door. What I didn't realize, they put a glass in my door. I mean, like it's, I had to put a blind up so that I could get work done. 
That's a conviction. The little car I wrecked a month ago is a mile up the streets being picked up this week by the salvage company. And um, by the way, the guy who pulled it out with the tractor trailer wrecker said, I normally pull dead bodies out of this ravine. So I am thankful. Um, but anyway, the car is down the street at uh, a shop that is holding it until it's picked up. And I was down there looking at it. My wife dropped me off, and I know the owner, so we were talking about my car and looking at it. It still makes me sad. I hate it. I destroyed a beautiful little car. Jay Leno has number one. I had number 77. Mine was all carbon fiber. It's beautiful. Destroyed. But anyway, I was looking at it in the morning, grieving. And... Uh, <laughs> And he reminded me I'm alive, and that's a good reminder. And then it was time to go home, and I couldn't get a hold of my wife, and his wife was there, and she said, oh, I'll run you home. It's only a mile up the road. What's the answer? It is, I'll walk. Now, it'd be easy. It's one mile. It's not that far. What's going to happen? Nothing's going to happen. That's an open door. Convictions will protect you. Pre-made convictions, resolutions ahead of time will protect you because that made that easy. No, Christian, can't, can't get a hold of Karen. Only a mile, I can walk. We finished Bible study up uh, about two months ago. I'm a block and a half from home. I helped one of our gals load her car with some of the foodstuffs from the Bible study, which we hosted that week on campus. Hey, Harry, I can give you a ride. It's a block and a half. That's an easy decision because I made it ahead of time. Otherwise, it would have been, oh, sure, Wendy, take me home. What's going to happen? Nothing. But that's how things happen. So you make up your mind ahead of time what you will do and not do. Non-negotiable convictions. Close the door. There are places I won't go. There are situations I'll not put myself in. Period. Ever. Not once. That's what will protect you. Because good people who do bad things don't make up their mind ahead of time. They're not trying to do bad things. They're just not resolved to do smart things. Make up your mind ahead of time. Number four. So anyway, the, the bottom line resolution is cultivate non-negotiable convictions ahead of time. That's a key word. Close the door. Not going to happen. No chance. Number four. Why do good people do bad things? Verse, verse eight. They flirt with fire. They put themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. Verse 8, passing through this seducible, I haven't made up my mind, young man, passes through the street near her corner. The her is a reference to personified immorality, the immoral woman. He passes through the street near her corner. He takes the way to her house. Look over at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8. Verse 7 says, now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not, do not let these words depart from your mouth. Keep, excuse me, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Don't put yourself in unprofitable circumstances. Keep yourself from poor places, poor positions, 
wrong things that can happen at the wrong time. I had an architect in my church in Birmingham. He's the leading ADA architect in America. The American Disabilities Act, stadiums, businesses have to be set up to handle those who have challenges getting in and out. That's his architectural firm. He's number one in the, in the nation. Flies all over. If you go into a CVS pharmacy and you used some kind of aid to get up into that facility, he designed it. His company did it. Flies all over. It's the first thing he would do when he would enter a hotel room when he's staying is unpull the cable. Unplug it. Jim, why do you do that? Don't want any temptation. I don't want to flirt with it because there's all kinds of things on cable television and I, I'm not interested. I don't want to flirt with fire. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. I, uh, I love this quote. I'm going to read a portion of it to you. This is flirting versus fleeing. Spurgeon, in his unequaled way, in contending with certain sins, there remains no mode of victory but by flight. He who would be safe from acts of evil must haste away from occasions of it. A covenant must be made with our eyes not even to look upon the cause of temptation, for such sins only need a spark to begin with, and a blaze follows in an instant. I love this statement. Who would wantonly enter the leper's prison and sleep amid its horrible corruption? He only who desires to be leprous himself would court such a contagion. This day I may be exposed to great peril. Let me have the serpent's wisdom to keep out of it and avoid it. I love this statement. The wings of a dove may be of more use to me today than the jaws of a lion. The devil I am to resist, and he will flee from me. But the lust of the flesh, I must flee, or they will surely overcome me. Can I boil that all down? Stay away from it. Christians have a nasty habit of seeing how close they can get to things. This is the admonition to say, stay as far away as you can. Don't flirt with fire. Don't put yourself in harm's way. Don't be curious. A regional representative for a missions agency, worldwide global missions agency, he would travel to Central Europe because that was his region. He was the regional director. And he was on his way to a director's meeting and the missionaries in that region of South Central Europe. And he uh, was connecting in Amsterdam to his destinations and... Uh, Europe, Germany starting there and then on through different parts of Europe. And uh, his plane had a mechanical challenge and it was grounded temporarily for the next eight or ten hours so that everybody get off the plane. And uh, he decided, he'd never been to Amsterdam, that he would tour. And there are sections of Amsterdam that are world famous, really infamous for things that are not compatible with morality and integrity. Married father of three. As he was passing by that notable area, he thought, hmm, I wonder if it is like they say it is. So he continued his tour, made a tragic decision. When I heard his voice, 
He had already landed. He turned around immediately, flew home after his failure. When I heard his voice, he had pulled alongside of Interstate 65, which runs from Birmingham south to Montgomery. And I could hardly interpret his words because of the sobbing and the anguish, the crying and the pain that he was living through. What I could hear in the background was the wailing of his wife. He had come home. He was now dealing with the consequences of a curious tour. I had to drive 10 miles because he couldn't drive. I picked them up, brought them back to my home. They sat on my front porch and my front porch swing and my wife and I did our very best to shepherd broken hearts. The genesis for that, I think I'll take a walk. I'll just see. Why do good people do bad things? That. There are certain places you never go. There are certain situations you never put yourself in. You keep yourself far from those circumstances. Some of you are businessmen. You'll get put in situations. You'll be challenged. You decide ahead of time, not going. No chance, no how. Some of the folks in my church have to fly to Vegas for business meetings. Got to make some decisions ahead of time. How this is going to go, where I'm going to go, where I'm going to stay, how it's going to play out. Smart people protect themselves. They have resolutions of heart. They have decisions of the mind. I will flee fire. I'll decline destructive and most likely to damage destinations. Not going. Well, you must be a weak person. Well, maybe I am, but I'm a smart person. Number five. Why do good people do bad things? They're deceived by the darkness. Verse nine. In the twilight. In the evening. In the middle of the night, in the darkness. So this guy is in her part of town, passing near her corner. He takes the way to her house. He's flirting with danger, flirting with fire. And he does so in the twilight, in the evening, in the pupil. That's the middle of the night, the darkest part of the night. You want to write down Job chapter 24, verse 15, because it reads like this. The eye of the adult adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks no eye will see me. Why does he go out in the darkest part of the night? Because there's a deception about the dark which would suggest I can get away with this. No one will know. That's the deception of the dark. Fact, someone does know. Look at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Is it true that it's too dark for God to know? Not true. The deception of the dark says nobody will know. The fact is God knows, and the truth is more than not, other people will know. There's an adulterer's website or 
called uh, Ashley Madison, where millions of people, thousands of people sign up to connect immorally anonymously. All the stuff's protected. You remember this. Somebody hacked it. Somebody revealed the names. What was supposed to be anonymous all of a sudden became public. Do you know that there were people who killed themselves over that revelation? Look, it's never true that nobody knows. I don't care how dark it is. And it's rarely true that no one else will know. That's a deception. I had two guys in my men's group in Birmingham. They had a trade show at the Civic Center. 20,000 people is a big deal in the fall. Every fall, there were different trades. And they would go, and they didn't go together. They knew each other, but they just didn't go to the trade show together. 20,000 people spent all day there. They're coming out. They parked different places. They came out. Dan came out behind Jim. The end of the evening, just so happened, coming out of the parking lot, Dan comes out behind Jim. Jim makes a left out of the parking lot. Dan makes a left out of the parking lot. They get to the next crossroad stop sign. Jim goes right. Dan goes, huh, Jim doesn't live that way. Wonder where Jim's going. So Dan goes, I'm following Jim. So Dan follows Jim, and Jim turns into a place that's not a holy place. It's an unholy place with unholy immorality attached to it. Dan pulls up beside Jim and says, hey, Jim, what you doing? That was a good lesson. What are the chances? No chance unless the darkness deceives and suggests nobody will know. Oh, yeah. You'd be shocked at how many revelations happen when you think no one will know. The darkness deceives, and listen to this one, the darkness isolates. Because isolation promotes failure. Accountability is the friend of integrity. Turn the lights on. Function in transparency. Let people know what you're doing. My secretary has my password. My wife has my password. My son has my password. In my old ministry, a tech guy would go through my iPad and my computer every month. Why did they do that? Harry's an accident looking for a place to happen? No, it was accountability to protect Harry from choices that otherwise he might make. Accountability is the friend of integrity. I've learned this. If a man won't make his life open, that man's in trouble. Here's an app you need to write down. If you have a smartphone, write this down. It's free. Life 360. Life 360 is an app. Dan's wife showed me this at the front of my church at one Sunday. Dan was on a missions trip to Alaska. I said, have you talked to him? Oh, yeah, I talked to him this morning. Do you want to see where he's at? She whips out her phone. Life 360. Life 360 uses Google Maps. Dan's on the phone, and she can zero in. Like my wife, Karen, if she wants to know where Harry is right now, she can see the building I'm standing in. That's Life 360. It'll zoom all the way in. 
My family knows where I'm standing. My mother knows where I'm standing. My son knows where I'm standing. Luke Cherry and his family, he's the vice president of development at Masters. He travels all over. I'm his accountability. He's mine. You can look where I'm at. Hey, Harry, what were you doing in Hollister this weekend? You need that app. I'll tell you why, and I, I, I don't get any promotional benefit from this. So I'm selling nothing. <laughs> okay. I'm hoping you'll get spiritual benefit from this, marital benefit from this. Listen to me. Accountability is the friend of integrity. There's a thousand choices you don't have to make if somebody knows. If I know somebody's going to look at the stuff I'm doing, well, I'm not going to. If you travel with somebody, I've been to Europe many times on missions trips. Great to have a companion. It eliminates a thousand temptations or decisions. It's not going to happen. Now, you can beat accountability if you want to. Just make it really hard. Deception, the darkness deceives, and the darkness isolates. So always, here's my resolution that will protect your life and marriage. Always arrange for accountability. Always. It's the friend of integrity. The more you have, the better. I think, too, darkness escalates immorality. There's some things that happen at night that don't happen during the day. Anybody know a day club? Mostly nightclubs. There's a reason they're nightclubs. That's why Romans 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day. Not in promiscuous, carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, not in sensuality. Act like somebody who's functioning in the day. Always arrange for accountability. Number six, why do good people do bad things? This is a big one, not that the others weren't big. But this is the heart of the section. It's verses 10 through 21. Why do good people do bad things? Here you go. They do not anticipate the aggressiveness, the availability, and the appeal of immorality. They do not anticipate the aggressiveness, the availability, and the appeal of immorality. They don't anticipate it. I want you to watch through this supernatural, inspired morality play as a descriptor of the way immorality works. Verse 10, behold a woman. That's the personification. It's, it's just a person. Okay, This is not meant to say only women are immoral. This is a figure for an immoral person. This is a morality play. If it's a mother talking to a daughter or a father talking to a daughter, this person is going to become a male. Behold a woman comes to meet him. She's dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. Availability. She's now in the streets. She's now in the squares. She lurks by every corner. Aggressive. She seizes him. She kisses him. With a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows. Aggressiveness. I have come out to meet you. To seek your presence earnestly. And I've found you. I've spread my couch with coverings. With colored linens of Egypt. That's finery. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. That's fragrance. 
Come now, let us fill, come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. The word our fill is intoxicated. It's fulfilling is what she's saying. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for the man is not at home. That's a reference to her husband. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he'll come home. In other words, he's gone for a long time. No chance he's coming back. It's all free. Fun, fulfillment, frolic, fragrance, finery, free. Verse 21, aggressive. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Now, don't misunderstand. This is a gift to us because it identifies the characteristics of immorality. Immorality is aggressive. We highlighted it. Verse 10, comes to meet him. Verse 13, seizes and kisses. Verse 15, seeks earnestly. Verse 21, many persuasions. You see in verse 10, the word cunning. That word cunning is a predator term. It's a hunting term. It's purposefully predatory. Look at verse 26, chapter 6. On account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. An adulteress hunts for the precious life. All right, here's a news flash for you. You don't have to be looking for immorality. Immorality is looking for you. You do not have to set out to find it. It is seeking to find you. Most people don't prepare for that reality. Immorality is aggressive anytime, any place. It's not safe. And you need to act like it's not safe. You need to live like you live in Baghdad or Afghanistan or some terrorist controlled country because the world is saturated with immorality and predators. I'm not trying to make you paranoid, I'm trying to make you smart because you have precious vows to keep. My grandmother was 80 years old when she moved in with my family. I'm her only grandson. My step-grandfather passed away. She needed a place to live, and my home was the home she chose to live in, and I love her, and she loved me, and it was a precious thing to be able to finish out her life with her, and she was 80 when this event happened. She was still able to drive. We lived south of Birmingham. And uh, she had driven to the mall, the Galleria Mall in Birmingham, Alabama. She had done some shopping. She had come back home. It was a Monday. I know it was a Monday because I was, that's my off day. I would preach on Sunday and take Monday off. John, I don't know when you take off, but Mondays for me were work days at home, chore days, yard days. And I was weed whacking. My grandmother came around the front of the house after parking her car. We greeted each other. I sat the weed whacker down. How was your time? What'd you do? We just exchanged friendly communication and then she said oh Harry I found this laying by the car in the parking lot it was a DVD it was plain clothes it had the diamond collection on it I said hmm diamond collection maybe it's a jewelry salesman promo thing and she said oh probably so and we sat it on the I sat it on the front steps and went about my business she went inside at the end of the weed whacking I picked it up and carried it up to my part of the house and to my television room in the living room and I put it on top of the audiovisual cabinet forgot about it till the next Monday I was home I was home alone everybody was gone I went to, I was going to fire up sports center and I went reached up to the cabinet turned the stereo on and the tv stuff and I saw the diamond collection I thought, ah, I'm gonna see what the diamond collection is anybody want to guess what the diamond collection was <laughs> it was not jewelry it was pornography 
graphic pornography, shocking pornography, made me mad pornography. Hey, that's not fair. 80-year-old grandmother hand delivers to her only grandson who's a pastor pornography. That's aggressive. Man, I couldn't get it out. You know, you're pushing the buttons hard because you don't want to see what you're seeing and you want that thing out and I get it out and I go around the back of the house and I had a sledgehammer. Man, that was gratifying moment. I was mad. That's not what I wanted. I didn't invite that into my house. I didn't walk into a store and buy it. I didn't order it online. It was hand-delivered to me by my 80-year-old godly grandmother. I never told her. I didn't have the heart to tell her what she did because it wasn't her fault. But that's predatory. Can you say amen to that? What I'm trying to say is you people who do bad things, they're not alert. It's aggressive. It's predatory. There's a hunter hunting. And I could give you a dozen stories, not just my own, other stories, other people in other places. There's no safe place, not even church. You just need to have your head up, your eyes open. Aggressive. Number two, it's available. You saw it in verse 12. She's now in the streets, squares, plural. Do you see that? Every corner. Look, you know this. Your smartphone, your computer, it's everywhere, anytime. It's available. And then all those appealing words. Husband gone, no consequence, food, finery, fragrance, fulfillments, all free. Is she lying? Not lying. She's just not forecasting the consequences. Sin never does that. It wouldn't be temptation if it wasn't appealing. It is appealing. Your basest appetites, natural appetites, she's not lying. Sin is aggressive. Sin is appealing. The decision must not be based on the potential gratification promised, but by a recognition, a predetermined conviction, because the appeal is always powerful, the appeal is always compelling, and here's a resolution. You need to be prepared for a powerful proposition. It's going to come. Get ready for it. Number seven, why do good people do bad things? They overlook the obvious. Verses 10 through 13. They overlooked the obvious. I want you to notice her attire was obvious. She's dressed as a harlot. Her dress was obvious. Her attitude was obvious. Verse 11, she's boisterous and rebellious. A godly woman doesn't have a boisterous spirit. She's got a quiet honoring spirit. Her actions are obvious. Verse 12, where she is, she's not at home. She's not where she's supposed to be in the middle of the night. Verse 13, what she does, she seizes and kisses. She tries to take immorality, tries to take you places you shouldn't go and tries to do things you shouldn't do. This should be obvious. Here's what I've learned about people. Naive people don't see what other people obviously see. Which leads me to this conclusion. Open your eyes with objective observers. Let 
people, the immorally immature or the morally immature tend to not see what others clearly see. I didn't know she was that kind of girl. I didn't know he was that kind of guy. I did. Somehow we get infatuated, get confused. What should be obvious isn't 